just went through some crap, right? This was a really tough experience. What can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I use this experience to serve me in the future or to help other people? Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella and today I have a special treat for you. I am joined by Hal Elrod, the number one best-selling author of The Miracle Morning, a book that is widely regarded as one of the most life-changing books ever written. Does that sound like hyperbole to you? Stay tuned and we'll see how you feel by the end of this interview. Right now, this book has more than six hundred five-star reviews on Amazon, so I can't be wrong about this. Hal, welcome to the show. Ella, that was a great intro. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I am so glad to have you, Hal. You made um, quite an impression on me when I heard an interview of yours months ago, and I actually jotted your name down on the back of some sort of paper scrap in my in my uh, purse, and I was like, I got to talk to this guy. I got to talk to this guy. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Hal. Okay, so I am not going to tell the listeners too much about you. I'm going to let your story speak for itself, Hal. You are widely known now for what you're calling the Miracle Morning. I believe something that started as a personal endeavor for you and has now turned into this flying off the shelves book. True? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was never going to be a book. And now it is I would even say it's a movement. It, it's become this international movement with people from around the world joining every day and doing their miracle morning and swearing by it and telling their friends and like, I'm just I'm I'm in awe every day. I'm in awe. So yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. Well, it's just incredible. And before we get into what the Miracle Morning is, I need our audience to understand what I know about you. I need them to understand where you came from and how you got about this. Because I can tell you right now, Hal, we have people out there who are like, the Miracle Morning, great. And they're about <laughs> they're about to hit the pause button. God help yeah. us. So <laughs> I, I would say the majority of people on the planet, or at least in America, and uh, that do the Miracle Morning, uh, resisted, you know, they, they, you know, it's always, oh, I'm not a morning person. I don't think I can do this. And then a week later, oh my gosh, I'm a morning person. It worked, you know, same thing for me. I was like the furthest thing from morning person. I tried a few, you know, minor tweaks and it was like, wow, waking up is actually, I can make it fun and exciting. So yeah, to, to back up and share my story. Um, I think the first, the most important thing to share initially is my entire life. I was very mediocre. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we know people in our lives that like they're good at everything and they've always been good at everything. They're like the best, right? they, they got great grades in school. You know, they were really smart, popular, athletic, right? Anything they do, they just, they're great at it. You invite them over to play a board game that you've, they've never played before and they just, they kick your butt. And you're like, what are you? They're like, I don't know, right? <laughs> we all know those people. I hate those people. You know, I wasn't one of those people. So for me, I got bad grade, you know, C's and D's in school. Uh, I was a real nice kid, you know, fun loving kid. In fact, I was a class voted class clown in seventh grade. Um, I didn't play sports except for, you know, basketball with my friends after high school. I never really achieved anything. In fact, the opposite, the only record I broke and a true story, uh, I held in high in senior year of high school. I had the record for the most hours of detention that any student had ever gotten before. And it was a hundred and I think 180 hours of detention that could never be served in a, like, you know, four school lifetimes. My parents had to like donate money to the school to get me to graduate, right? So, so that's a picture of like who I was, right? Mom and dad are worried sick. They're sending me off to college and they're like, oh, please don't get arrested again. Please don't, right? <laughs> All of this stuff. So that's me. And after my first year of college, I, I my friend um, got me this job selling Cutco cutlery. Cutco kitchen knives. You ever heard of Cutco before? I have indeed. Yeah. Okay. So I started selling Cutco and I had no, again, no ambition. I, I was not an ambitious person. And, um, on my second day of my three day Cutco training, I like a, a switch inside me was flipped, right? I should say, I, I guess I flipped it, but we found out about the company records, the most anyone had ever sold of Cutco. And I went, you know what? Why not me? Like I'm tired of settling for less than my best. And sadly, I think that's the story of the human race. I think Maslow said that, right? It's people selling themselves short. 
And, you know, most people, right, we all have this vision of like, yeah, I'd love to, you know, be in better shape or, or be healthier or happier or make more money or have a better relationship. Yet most people don't do anything about it, right? They wake up every day and it pretty much their life stays the same. And for me, I just decided, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, why not me? If another human being could go out there and do this amazing thing, why can't I go out there and, you know, and even do better? And to keep a long story short, I went out there in my first 10 days, I was trying to break the company record of the most any sales rep in 50 years had ever sold in their first 10 days. And the record was $12,000. And my first day I went 0 for 3, right? Good old mediocre Hal. And I was ready to quit. And luckily my man, I had a mentor. He said, Hal, don't give up. I know today was bad. I know, you know, but you can do it. You can make up for it. And I went out and 10 days later, I had worked harder than I've ever worked in my life. And I sold $15,000 of Cutco and I broke the all-time record. And I think what's important, right, is that, that that any moment we can make a decision. I mean, actually, Tony Robbins says that in our moments of decision that our destiny is shaped. And any moment we can make a decision that, you know what, I'm drawing my line in the sand. No more mediocrity. No more settling for less than I'm really capable of or than I want. And today's the day I'm going to take my life to the next level. And it's that, it literally is that simple. It's not complicated. And then it's, what do I got to do committing to do the work? So fast forward a year and a half, and this is where the story really takes a turn. Um, I, you know, you could say figuratively speaking, I was on top of the world. I, you know, I was one of the top reps of the company. Now life was going well. I just got my own apartment. I had a girlfriend. I just bought a brand new Ford Mustang, like, which was at that time, you know, 20 years old. It's my dream car, five speed transmission, bright white, Ford Mustang with gray interior. And I, I was driving home from a, a work meeting uh, one night, 1130 at night. And uh, a drunk driver got on the freeway in their full size Chevy truck, much larger than my little Ford Mustang. And they merged all the way over to the right lane, which they thought was their slow lane, but it was actually my fast lane because they were going against traffic. You mean they were driving in the opposite direction? They were driving in the opposite direction. They were on the freeway going 80 miles an hour, coming straight at me. And I was going 70 miles an hour, cruise control set, jamming out to tunes, you know, feeling good. I was happy. Life was going well, you know, grateful. And I don't remember what I'm about to tell you. I, I don't remember the headlights coming at me. I don't remember the impact. Uh, I only know what I'm about to tell you from uh, eyewitnesses, police reports, hospital records, etc. But around 11.36 p.m., this full-size Chevy truck comes barreling down the highway at 80 miles an hour, and I'm doing 70 miles an hour when we crash head-on in a 150-mile-an-hour head-on impact. The front of my car is destroyed. The engine is crushed. The windshield is shattered. The ceiling buckles. And the worst is actually yet to come. As my car goes spinning off the drunk driver and... If you can imagine, like my the tail of my car spins to the right, where the driver's side, basically my side of the car, is exposed to the car that was right behind me, just a couple car lengths, and they hit me in the door at 70 miles an hour. And to give people an idea of what that's like, and even for me to realize what it's like, I always have, you know, if you're listening to this, if you whether you're driving or whatever, put your hands up on a steering wheel, just pretend. And look over to your left like you're looking out. Pretend you're in your car and you're looking out your, your driver's side window. And imagine a car is going 70 miles an hour and just crashes into you. And what you might imagine happened is what happened. The entire left side of my car was crushed into the left side of my body. And instantaneously, I broke 11 bones. My, my, my femur, the, the big, and this is the part where just, I, I always share the injuries because people are usually curious, or at least some people are, if this part freaks you out, like just, you know, fast forward 30 seconds. Um, but, but my femur, the biggest bone in the human body, it broke in half and one half, you know, came out the side of my, my thigh, my pelvis was crushed between the center console and it broke three separate places. My humerus bone behind my bicep had the same fate as my femur. It broke in half and one half came out behind the elbow. My elbow was shattered. I severed the nerve in my left arm. I broke all of the bones around my left eye socket so bad that it's made of three titanium you know, plates. My ear was almost completely severed, and the ceiling buckled, and it sliced a V in the top of my head. Ugh. And sorry to be graphic, but the uh, unable to withstand, and that's the end of the graphic part, unable to withstand the pain uh, thankfully my body and my brain, I was, I was in a coma, you know, instantly I was in a coma, you know, bleeding from head to toe and on, you know, just, I mean, left for to dead almost, you could say, 
My best friend, Jeremy, was a minute behind me on the freeway. He found me first. He didn't recognize the car at first because it was so mangled. And then he figured out, oh, my God, that's Hal. And he pulled, he jumped out of his car, ran over, and he sees me through the shattered windshield and the window, the side window. And, you know, I'm covered in blood. So he's, he's yelling, Hal, Hal, Hal. And based on the fact that the way I looked and that I wasn't responding, he thought I must be dead. And he, he reached in the car, he, he felt my pulse, and I, he felt a pulse. I was alive. He called 911, and it took them an almost an hour for the, the paramedics, the fire department, the police department. They all came out. They had to use the jaws of life to cut the roof off the car and pull me out. And when they did, I had been bleeding for an hour. And they finally pulled me out, and I lost so much blood that I died. Uh, I, I clinically was dead. I, my heart stopped beating. I stopped breathing. I was not alive anymore. I was clinically dead. And they rushed me onto the helicopter. They pumped me full, you know, put me up to an IV, um, hooked me up to an IV, used the defibrillators, tried to bring me back to life. And thankfully, they kept at it because it took about five or six minutes of being clinically dead. And then they brought me back to life, rushed me to the hospital. I had emergency surgery. Uh, I was in a coma for six days. Doctors said I would never walk again. And, um, you know, I can, I can finish the story. But that was essentially the adversity. And six days later, I woke up out of the coma to face this reality that, I had permanent brain damage. My brain was smashed from the head-on collision. Uh, the doctor said I would never walk again, and my body was just destroyed with you know permanent scarring and metal rods in my leg and my arm and my elbow and plates in my eye and and on and on. So, Hal, you're on top of the world as as a 20 year old defines it. You have this just incredible circumstance put upon you. What's it like when you wake up to that? So. Uh, I, again, I don't remember waking up my first, but, but I know what I, I know from stories of everyone that was there, you know, when I woke up and, and for the first days, my friends, my family, mom, dad, sister, you name it. And essentially they said that when I woke up, um, I was, you know, I was lethargic. I was slurring my speech. I was and, and my memory because it was so bad. They would tell me what happened to me and I would just kind of be real, you know, lethargic trying to process this. And then I would fall asleep and I'd wake back up. And because of the short-term memory loss, I would have no memory of what they had told me. And it would be like my poor parents. I really, I, now that I have kids, you know, I've got a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. I see the accident as a whole in terms of how it impacted people much differently. I used to think it happened to me. Now I think it happened to my parents. <laughs> like, yeah, I went through it, but they went, you know, I, just, I can't imagine what they went through. But so they had to relive the nightmare of telling me what happened to me over and over and over again. And after a, I think it was a couple days, you know, kind of finally went from the short term to started to seep into my long term memory. And I, I, I gained my bearings of, I'd wake up and I knew where I was. I knew I was in the hospital and I started processing it. And first and foremost, my parents said the first thing I started doing was trying to sell Cutco to the doctors and nurses. <laughs> um which, and my parents were like mortified and they're like, Hal, stop it. And I go, mom and dad, do you know how much doctors make? These are like the best prospects you out there, right? And um, and so uh, as soon as, you know, I got my bearings, I basically went back to being, you know, kind of my same old self. And and here's here's really the answer to your question where I think the listeners may find some value. Uh, a week after I came out of the coma, so I was in a coma for six days. A week after I came out of the coma, so about two weeks after the accident, the doctors called my parents in and they sat them down for a little a little meeting. And they said, we're very concerned with Hal. Physically, he's doing great. You know, his vitals are good. He's, he's healing. Because I had, I had flatlined twice in my coma. I had died two more times in my coma. So obviously, mom and dad are mostly concerned with my physical well-being. And the doctor said, physically, he's, he's you know, he's things are good. Signs are good. However, we're concerned that Hal, we believe he is in denial um, because every time we talk to him, whether it's doctors, nurses, therapists, uh, your son is always smiling and laughing and joking. And they said, that's not normal. You know, not for a 20 year old that's being told he may never walk again. So we've seen this before. We believe that Hal's reality is so painful for him to accept that he simply can't accept it. So he's checked out and he's basically delusional. And the problem is eventually it's gonna he's gonna have to face what happened to him. He's gonna have to face the real emotion, the fear, anger, sadness, depression. And we want him to go through that in the hospital where it's safe, not out there in the real world where he could turn to drugs or alcohol or, you know, heaven forbid, suicide. 
my dad, of course, they were concerned. My dad came in, he said, and he sat down and I didn't know the conversation had happened. And, you know, I was in the hospital bed and keep in mind, this is like a week after the coma. So my ears, you know, bandage, I've got a cast on my arm. I mean, I'm just, I'm pretty, pretty messed up in my, in my bed and a lot of pain. And he said, Hal, can I talk to you for a second? And he basically explained that the doctors were concerned that I, you know, that I should be feeling sad, depressed, angry. I needed to go through that. And he said, Hal, how are you really feeling? You know, when I know your friends are here, you're joking, you're telling stories, but how are you really feeling when the lights go out at night, when there's no one around, when there's no TV, when you're, there's no distractions? Are you sad? Are you angry? Are you depressed? It's normal. It's okay, but let's talk about it. And I really thought, because my dad's eyes were red, they were watery, he was either had been crying or was trying not to cry, and you know, I could tell it was really serious. And so I really thought about his questions, am I sad, am I angry, am I depressed, am I scared? And I, honestly, I just looked at my dad, Ella, and I, I smiled and I said, Dad, I thought you knew me better than that. I said, remember, I live by the five-minute rule that I learned in my Cutco training which said, it's okay to be negative when things go wrong. It's okay to be negative, but not for more than five minutes, right? There's no point in dwelling on something that's in the past. Even if it's only five minutes in the past, if you can't change it, what's the point in wishing you could? What's the point in putting emotion like sadness, anger, fear, right? Depression. I said, dad, I can't change this. And there's only one of two options in my opinion. I said, number one, the doctors are right. And I will never walk again. And guess what? If I can never walk again, I can either be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair or I can be depressed. And I'm choosing the first one. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. So I've already accepted the worst case scenario. I'm at peace with it. I'll be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair. And I did say to you, by the way, I said, and dad, remember, I always wanted to be, you know, ever since I started speaking at these Cutco conferences, I always want to be a motivational speaker, but I never really had anything to talk about. You and mom were like good to me and I had a normal childhood. Maybe that's why this is happening. I said, the second possibility, though, is I will walk again. You know, the doctors might be experts in medicine, but they're not experts in me. And I'm putting all my energy not into my fear that I might not walk again. I'm visualizing every day that I'm going to walk again. I'm praying every day that I'm going to walk again. I'm thinking about it. I'm imagining it. I'm feeling what it's going to feel like until I'm proven otherwise. And Ella, I number one... I realized that that was the key that unlocked the door to freedom from our emotional pain is acceptance. Once I chose to accept what I couldn't change what was out of my control, which by the way, is everything that's ever happened up until this point in our lives. Yeah. Most people suffer over things that happened five minutes ago, five days ago, five weeks, months, years when they were children, they're still suffering because they wish it were different that it didn't happen. And I realized that once we just simply accept it, it doesn't mean we're happy about it. I wasn't necessarily happy that I was in this accident, but I was much more powerful than that. I was at peace. And then I could choose to be happy or grateful or excited or, you know, hopeful, whatever I wanted to be, because there was that space because the negative emotion wasn't there. And I don't know if it was, you know, I mean, I think there's got to be a link to the power of positive thinking that one week later, one week later, three weeks after my bones broke, the doctors came in with routine x-rays and they said, Hal, we don't know how to explain this, but your bones are healing incredibly. We're going to let you walk today in therapy. It went from never walk again to maybe like, you know, in a year we could revisit it to three weeks after the crash and a week after the doctor told my parents they thought I was in denial. So you say you say that this went from being something that's so obviously devastating, as you said, so, so difficult for your family to being one of the best things that ever happened to you. And, and I think I think it's easy to start to see why you can say that. But what do you say to people yeah. who say everything happens for a reason? So every I'm glad you asked that question, because I actually ask that question whenever I'm speaking. I say, how many of you, by a show of hands, believe that everything happens for a reason? And it's usually about 60 to 70% of the room that goes up. And then I say, how many of you, either you don't, you don't quite believe that or buy into the philosophy, or you're just not really sure. And usually, you know, the rest of the hands go up. And, 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 and what I've found, you know, and, and I don't believe that I, you know, that I, I know anything that, you know, or I, that I'm right. But um, what I found is that I believe everything happens for a reason, but not the way that most people have been conditioned to think. You know, most people go through life like trying to figure out what the reasons are. Like they ask other people, they ask God, why did this happen to me? Especially with the diversity, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. Like, how could this happen to me? I wanted so bad for this one thing to happen and it didn't happen, right? 
And, and by the way, if you look at that, that's that their level of resistance, like they're wishing and wanting something to be different that's not different, literally is what creates our emotional pain. It's not the thing that we think is causing it. It's the fact that we're resisting and wishing it were different, not accepting it. So, so everything happens for a reason, but I believe that it's 100% our responsibility to choose the reasons. It's not something you're supposed to ask God about or figure out. You get to decide, hey, I just went through some crap, right? This was a really tough experience. What can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I use this experience to serve me in the future or to help other people? And, you know, honestly, I have this sense of responsibility when I was in the hospital where I thought it is, and I don't, I don't know, I mean, call this divine intervention. I, I don't know at 20 how I was already kind of thinking this way, but um, I have this feeling, and I, I, this is where I told my dad with the whole speaking thing. I said, I feel like it's my responsibility to overcome this adversity in you know as positive a, a manner as I possibly can so that I can help other people, whether it's my kids one day or my friends, my family, or if I ever become a speaker or the doctors had suggested after my parents went back to them and told them my response, they go, he needs to write a book. That's not, that really isn't normal, right? You know, that's where the seed was planted. My dad was like, the doctor said he should write a book. And I go, well, I can barely write an essay, but maybe one day, you know, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's what I say is that, yeah, everything does happen for a reason, but it's, you get to choose the reasons and you can choose reasons that disempower you and discourage you and make you feel defeated. Right. Or reasons that, that empower you. And, and here's an example, right? The exact same tragedy could befall two different people. Same tragedy. They lose a, their parents or they uh, get divorced or they lose their job or they go bankrupt, whatever. doesn't matter, right? Same exact tragedy happens to two different people. Person number one, you go find out what the reasons are that they've decided. Hey, well, why did this happen to you? <laughs> Bad things always happen to me, right? Or, or you know, or, uh, you know, God's not doesn't exist or Obama's in office or right. Or people are mean and can't be like, they've got all these reasons that have nothing to do with like, there's no benefit to the reasons they've chosen. They just make them feel discouraged, defeated, etc. Then you go to person number two, you go, Hey, the exact same thing happened to you. Why do you think it happened? And they, even though it was the same tragedy, they've got different reasons. They go, you know what? I, I, if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. I'm going to learn and grow from this. I think that on the other side of this adversity, if I get through this or when I get through this, I'll be a more capable person. I'll be better than I am now, right? And, and again, same tragedy, but the reasons that we choose determine the quality and the direction you know, of our lives. Hal, so often people can can say these things and share these things and it can sound trite or they make it sound too easy. And it is simple, but that doesn't always mean that it's easy, of course. But what I love about your story is you've earned the right to talk about it. So, <laughs> sure. so question for you, let's fast forward a little bit. So you take some of that direction and you become a motivational speaker and you become a coach. And what is absolutely ironic about your story is the accident wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to you, was it? <laughs> no, no. And, and, you know, like in the Miracle Morning book, right, the way I framed it is I said, I've had, I've had two rock bottoms in my life. And the second one, the first was the accident. The second one was surprisingly worse than the first. And, and a rock bottom, by the way, for anyone listening, you've had a rock bottom. We've all, we've all had many rock bottoms in our lives. And the way I define a rock bottom is any time in your life where it's as bad, it's worse than it's ever been. You know, it's the hardest thing you've ever had to go through. And like for, they're all relative. Rock bottoms are relative for each person, for where we are in our lives. Like when I was in seventh grade and my girlfriend broke up with me, right? That was a rock bottom. <laughs> I wanted to like kill myself and I didn't want to go to school anymore. And I'm like, what's the point of living if she doesn't want to be with me, right? You know, seventh grade. So for me, the, when I tell people that the second rock bottom was worse than the first, I always get like a funny look. They go, but dude, you died. You yeah, know, like, did, what, did you die four times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you die longer? Like what happened? So no, when, here's the interesting thing. This goes back to the everything happens for a reason because my first adversity, you know, you put it in an interesting way, right? I earned the right to talk about this because I, I, I lived it and it was an extreme adversity. And I really believed, and I still believe that I went through that so that I could you know, when I'm speaking to other people or they're reading one of my books or whatever, they can learn the experience and learn the lessons. And for most people, that experience is more extreme than they've endured in terms of adversity, right? And I don't, I, you know, I don't even like saying that really, because I, I would never say that it was harder. What I went through is harder than what someone else went through. You know, again, it's all relative. But for most people, they're like, wow, that's pretty extreme. And if he could be happy in the midst of being told he'd never walk again and having died, like, hmm, maybe I could be happy in the midst of the fact that I lost my job, right? 
So I believe that happened for that reason. However, there's also an element of disconnect, meaning it's such an extreme adversity that unless someone else had died and that's what they were dealing with, or they'd been, you know, broken their leg and told they're never going to walk again, then most people are like, yeah, if I died, I'd be that positive too, right? I've like literally had people say that to me, you know, they're like, yeah, you're so positive, but you, I mean, yeah, if I died, you know, I'd see the world that way too. I'm like, what a, what a dumb way to, like, then I'd know, really be grateful. <laughs> yeah. How about don't die, but just take the lesson and the perspective, right? So here's the point. The worst adversity for me was one that most people can much more closely relate to. It was a financial adversity. And I mean very sincerely that it was harder for me to go through. Uh, I was deeply depressed for the first time in my life. I was suicidal. Um, I, I, I was got in the worst shape of my life physically. What happened was in 2008, Right around 2008, when the U.S. economy began to crash, um, at that time I had a, I was, I was earning a great living. You know, I had a six-figure business. I was, I was doing success coaching. I had my first book, uh, "Taking Life Head On," is the title of my first book. That was doing well. It was a bestseller. Um, I was, I had just started getting paid to speak professionally. Like that was the dream. So life was great. I just bought my first brand new house. I bought a new car. Like things, you know, by the way, I always knock on wood because I'm like, man, every time things get going really well, something really awful happens you know, for me. So, which is a belief I've like created affirmations around to like get, like not be afraid of that, you know, but anyway, so, um, so almost over, it felt like it was overnight. It was basically the six month downward spiral, but, um, I lost over half of my income because my coaching clients, the economy affected them and they couldn't afford to pay me and they had to cancel their coaching. And so I lost over half my income. In fact, I lost 60% of my income uh, within a matter of months. And I then could not pay my mortgage. I lost my house. I, I, I canceled my gym membership naturally. It was like the first thing. So I stopped exercising. And physically, I was in the worst shape of my life having not exercised for a minute in six months, not a minute. Um, and as a result of so much fear, so much uncertainty, losing my house, I started living on credit cards. I was in, in six months, I accumulated $52,000 of personal credit card debt. And I just, I lost it. I was, I, I was, I tried using my positive thinking and everything I could and it would work, but then it would get worse. And it's like, I didn't, I just didn't know how to handle things getting progressively worse every day. It seemed like, and so I was ready to just give up. I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning and to keep a long story short, I talked to a friend. He encouraged me to go on a run. He said, Hal, you've got to exercise every day and listen to something that will give you answers, right? Podcasts, audiobooks. I got I got to stop you there because you, you're in the worst. It's now officially the worst thing, the lowest of the low point. Yeah. And you're like, I've already survived this. And now here I am. So it really can't get lower than this. And then each day it gets incrementally lower until you find yourself under mountains of debt. And you call yeah. your friend, your guru, your mentor, and he, tell yeah. and he tells you to go for a run. What happened was, yeah, I called him like almost in tears. And I, it was one of my best friends, John, and he's a business genius. And I called him. I said, John, Hey man, I, I've been, I've been living alive for six months. Like, things are not okay. I'm, I'm, I'm in a bad place <clears throat> physically, mentally, emotionally, financially. <clears throat> I'm at my rock bottom. And I, I, I told him everything that, you know, that I just shared with you all, all, everything that was going on. And I'm sitting there with my laptop open. I said, John, I'm ready to take notes, man. You tell me what to do to turn this around, you know, get clients, whatever I will do it. And yeah, his answer completely disappointed. In fact, his answer was in the form of a question. I'm like ready for this genius business knowledge. Like in my mind, I'm thinking he's going to go, okay, step one, do this. Step two, do this. Step three, do this. And within uh, a month or two, <clears throat> you'll be turned around. And he goes, I go, okay, buddy, what do I do, man? Tell me. And he says, are you exercising every day? And I go, what the hell does that have to do with anything I just told you? Right. And I start picturing him like on his phone playing a game or something like not even paying attention. I'm pissed off. And he, he goes, how? No, I'm serious. He goes, look, you're a smart guy, but if you're depressed and you're just sitting in your office all day trying to, you know, just doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you've gotten. He said, you've got to get out there and exercise every day and put yourself in a peak physical, mental, and emotional state. And he said, and while you're exercising, go for a run every day, listen to, uh, you know, some sort of self-help audiobook or business audiobook or business podcast or whatever. And he said, just do that every day. Put yourself in a peak physical, mental, and emotional state and learn something new. And he goes, I promise you'll turn it around. And I said, John, 
I hate running, man. You know that. And he goes, yeah, but what do you hate worse, running or your circumstances, your life situation that you just described to me? And I was like, all right, screw you. I'll go for a run. And I went for a run the next day, and I heard a quote on the run. And by the way, when I was I left the front door to go running, I wasn't a runner. In my head, I'm like so negative. I'm like, oh, this is such bullshit. This is so stupid. Why is John – I? why am I oh, – like I need to make money. I don't need to run, you know, like – and so I'm so I'm just like angry and and I but I I heard a quote within like two minutes of the run from Jim Rohn and I'll share the quote here in a second, but this quote became the catalyst that would transform virtually every area of my life faster than I would have ever believed possible, and it is what created the Miracle Morning, and the quote is this: Your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development. Because success is something you attract by the person you become. I'll say it again because I, I literally rewound it. Yeah. And, I, and I, it said, your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development because success is something you attract by the person you become. And it hit me. I, I'm not dedicating time every day to my personal development to become the person that I need to be to create the success that I want in every area of my life. I'm pretty much, and this is like most people in America, we stay the same and wish our life would get better. And I realize I need to become more if I want my life to be more, right? And so I ran home. And here's the thing, personal development, and probably for most people listening, it's kind of like a, like, what does that mean, right? It's a vague topic. Like, how do I do more personal development? Do I just read a book every day? Like, what do I do? And, and let me define it, by the way. The way that I define personal development, it is your level of physical, mental, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual, like, basically every level of your, your being, your personal being, right? So, for example, if you increase your level of knowledge, you're increasing your personal development. If you do something that increases your confidence, you're increasing your personal development. If you do something like when I was running that puts you in a, that increases your, your mental, physical, and emotional state, right? That's increasing your person, your level of personal development. And the way that I, in that moment, kind of what helped me quantify this, and this will hopefully be helpful for your listeners. If you think about, if we're measuring our level of success on a scale of one to 10, and I'll, I'll actually kind of rhetorical question, but I'll ask this question of you. Um, so Ellie, you can actually answer. If we're measuring our success in our health, our finances, our happiness, our relationships, on a scale of one to 10, what level do we all want? Oh, we all want a 10. Yeah, no one's like, oh, I just like, I want a five. I don't <laughs> want to be too happy or have too much money. Like, I just want to be kind of mean. You know, no, everybody wants a 10. And here's what I realized. We all want level 10 success, but what are we doing to become a level 10 person that can easily create that level of success? And I realized that my level of personal development in each area was like at a two, maybe like a three or a four on a good day. Yet I wanted level 10 success, but our level of success will always parallel our level of personal development. And here's one way of, of framing that. Um, my parents just got a divorce. Uh, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago after you know 30 years of marriage, very obviously a painful thing. Well, the average, you know, the, the divorce rate in America is over 50%. Now, I haven't gone through divorce, so I'm not speaking from full experience. This is more kind of observation and theory. But if you ask the average person that's getting a divorce, how many books have you read on having an amazing marriage in the last six months? Ella, how many, how many books do you think the average person in America getting a divorce, which is like millions of people every you know year, how many books have they read on having an amazing marriage? I mean, honestly, zero. Point, zero. Point five. Maybe they bought exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you go, wait a minute. You want a level 10 marriage, but you're doing nothing to become even a level seven spouse, right? It's like, how many books did you read on having an amazing marriage? How many, how many couples did you talk to that have been married for 50 years happily and find out what their secrets are? How many married couples retreats did you attend to work on things with your partner, right? How, right? On and on and on. And it's not universal. Some people listening might go, no, we tried it all. It didn't work. Well, compatibility is a real thing. Compatibility is a real thing. Right. Like my mom and dad, I love them to death. I don't think they were ever meant to spend their lives together. They're just very different people, right? So, but but in general, any area of our lives, right? If we want to improve that area externally, it's about first improving who we are internally in that area. You want to make more money? How many books have you read on, on making more money and then implemented what you've learned in the books? Guess what? Read the books, 
implement the knowledge and oh my gosh, you'll see your results improve. So I ran home and I thought, I have to create the most extraordinary personal development routine known to man, or at least known to me, because I'm at such a low place. Like I don't want to do, I don't want to do this thing half-assed. I don't want to like slightly engage in personal development and kind of see things get better. I thought I want to go hardcore. So I spent about an hour at home where I ran right home. I spent about an hour researching what do successful people do? And I Googled things like best personal development practices, you know, daily personal development secrets, you know, on and on and on. What do successful people do every day? And I came up with a list of six practices and I kept coming across the one thing that I didn't want to accept. I kept coming across successful people have a morning ritual. They have a morning success ritual, like over and over. Early rising is the secret of success. And I finally was like, you know what? I got to wake up earlier. I'm going to try this. I'm not a morning person, but you know what? If I want my life to be different, I have to do something different. So I decided I'm going to wake up tomorrow an hour earlier than I normally do. And I am going to do all six of these practices. And the practices, by the way, I'll just, I'll run through them. Silence, which, you know, meditation or um, prayer, right? Um, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing, or what, you know, it's a fancy word for journaling. And by the way, this is for anyone listening. This is so, it's a, it's a, an acronym. After help with the thesaurus, I turned these six practices into the savers, the life savers. Savers is the acronym. S for silence, A for affirmations, V for visualization, E for exercise, R for reading, S for scribing. Now, here's the thing, Ella. When I came across these, you know, and it's like I'm reading all these different articles on success. At first, I almost dismissed the whole idea because I thought none of these are new to me. I've heard of all of these, right? And isn't that what we do? Like we're conditioned to we want the new thing. Like, isn't there an app that'll solve my problems, right? Yeah, the magic bullet. The magic bullet. The, we, yeah, we want something simple. And whenever we hear something, and this is a really important lesson, whenever we hear something that we've heard before, we tend to have four words fire off in our brain. I already know that, right? Or I've heard that before. And the question we should be asking is, replace those four words, I already know that, with these four words. Am I living that? And I realized, just because I've heard of these, I, I don't do them, right? I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've read before. Sure, I've exercised. But I don't do these consistently, at least. And, I, and so I realized, rather than pick one or two of these that successful people swear by, there are successful people that swear by meditation, right? In fact, uh, you can Google an article, Fortune 500 CEOs that meditate. Or Ray Dalio, the, the, he runs the largest hedge fund in the world. He's a billionaire. He says that meditation is his number one key to his financial success. Or Russell Simmons, founder of Def Jam Records from Run DMC, he wrote a book called Success Through Stillness, and he says that meditation is the number one key to his happiness, his fulfillment, and his financial success. So this is an example of one of the savers. People swear by it. So my idea was I want to I take my life to the next level fast. I'm going to do all of them. And, and to wrap up kind of the story, I woke up the next morning at 5 a.m., which was crazy <laughs> for me. And I did all six of these, which, by the way, I sucked at them. I was horrible. Like most of my meditation time was spent Googling articles on how to <laughs> meditate, right? And I'm like trying it. I'm going, okay, quiet my mind. I can't even quiet my mind long enough to think about quiet, you know. And so, but I go through all six. And even though I'm horrible at them, at 6 a.m. after this, you know, what is now known as the Miracle Morning, but it didn't have a name. It wasn't going to be a book. I felt amazing at 6 a.m. And that's where my entire life changed because I went, wow, if I start every day feeling this confident with this much clarity, this much energy, even though my life is still a friggin' mess, like my bank account is still negative. My credit card's $50,000 in debt. I'm losing my house in a few months. I'm in the, I'm looking in the mirror, looking the heaviest, you know, I'm the most out of shape I've ever been, but I feel like I'm a level 10 person. And if I do this every day, it's inevitable. I will become a level 10 person and I will see level 10 results in every area of my life. That was my hope. And I didn't know how fast it could happen. Within two months, I had more than doubled my income. I didn't get a raise. I just figured out how to do what I was doing better and more effectively. I went from being in the worst shape of my life physically to deciding I was going to run a half marathon and then a whole marathon. And then I said, you know what? This is my night, you know, how naive I was. I go, if I could run 26 miles having never run in my life, 
why not do an ultra marathon, which is 52 miles? And just, yeah, knowing what I know now, I would, if I would have, thank goodness I was naive because I would have never thought that was normal or possible. But I decided, you know what? The doctor said we never walked again. What, what, what a great way to show that anything can be overcome by any of us. And so five months later, I ran 52 miles as a result of my miracle morning. And then most importantly, I think it's most importantly, is that my physical and or my mental and emotional state that I was deeply depressed, it was gone that morning. It was gone that morning. It was it went from being like a nine on a scale of one to ten, where I thought of literally killing myself. I'm not you know, proud to say that, but that's what I thought because I didn't. I hated my life. I hated my problems. I didn't know how to fix them. I felt so hopeless and so powerless that that morning at six a.m. my depression went from a nine to a two, and it never went above you know maybe a three or a four on a bad day. And that was it. And, you know, that was seven years ago. And now there are tens of thousands of people around the world that have read the Miracle Morning and that have they experience the same types of results. And I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I'm in awe of it every day. I get emails, Facebook messages, you know, hundreds every week from people telling me how the Miracle Morning has changed their life. Well, and I think that what's amazing is, is it sounds like it just happened on a dime and, and it did because you just, you made a different choice that you're the one that had the control, but what do you attribute? Like, what is that switch? Like if we're talking to people and trying to get them to understand that they actually control the switch, how do you describe that? So the first, the first part of it is responsibility, right? And, and I believe that to the degree that you accept responsibility for everything in your life is the degree that you have the power to change anything in your life. And it doesn't matter if, you know, like I'll give you an example and this might, this might offend some people and I apologize in advance if it does, that's not my intention, but I don't care. Uh, I don't care much about like who's in the white house, for example. Now I care on a global scale based on choices that our, our, you know, our political parties and powers make, but on a personal level, I don't care if they raise my taxes I'll, I'll find a way to make more money. Like I just personally am like, it doesn't matter what happens outside of me at all. I am 100% responsible for my life and I will make it the way I want it to be in the midst of whatever, whatever rules and regulations are set up around me. That makes sense. It totally makes sense. And here's where I think people get hung up on that is that there's, there's a difference between responsibility and blame. And see, most people have trouble, I think just kind of, figuring out what the difference is, responsibility, or let me say blame. Blame determines who's at fault for something, but responsibility determines who's committed to improving a situation. Like when I was in a car accident, I could have said, well, it's not my fault, and I could have focused on the blame. It's his fault. Of course I'm going to be depressed or angry or sad. Look at what happened to me. He did this to me. That would have been blame. But guess what? He was The drunk driver was, was to blame. But he wasn't responsible for me or for my life or for my attitude or for my happiness or for where I was going. And we always blame other things outside of ourselves for what we do and what we say. Of course, I'm angry. Look at blank, which is always outside of ourselves. How about, of course, I'm happy because that's my choice. Of course, I'm successful, even though I had a horrible childhood, because that's my choice. So Hal, I, there are two more things I want to ask you about as we come up on time. And the first one is, what do you say to the people who say, well, I don't have time? Like, thanks, I got it. Personal development, got it, got it. I so don't have time. I'm so busy. So I think that's part of the beauty of the Miracle Morning is that you do it before anything else gets in the way, you know, and we've all done that before where we intended to do some reading in the evening and then you got home and you're exhausted and you've got some emails you've got to answer, right, on and on. So the beauty of the Miracle Morning, I mean, there's so many benefits to it. One of them, by the way, is when you hit the snooze button, you're literally, to think of this, consider that you're telling the universe that you'd rather lie there unconscious than create the life that you claim that you want because the alarm goes off and you, I mean, that that's your opportunity, right? That's life's first choice. And we either choose to lack the discipline to get out of bed in the morning, which affects our identity. We were telling ourselves, I don't have the discipline to get out of bed in the morning, let alone do everything else that I want to do. And I think that part of what makes the miracle morning, why people have, you know, what's made it so successful in terms of helping people is that the majority of people that are not morning people, there's this whole, there's this little section in the book. It's probably the shortest chapter and it's probably the most important because it's called the five step snooze proof wake up strategy. And it basically is these steps that are so simple. They're designed to do first thing in the morning when the alarm goes off, when you're half asleep and you have very little willpower and you do these five steps and they're so simple 
that when you're done with them, you're awake and you could have done them without any effort. So that makes sense. So for people that think I don't have time, that's what the miracle morning gives you. It gives you time. And it doesn't mean getting up early necessarily. It just means that rather than waking up at the last minute, when you have to get out the door, you just schedule your alarm clock, you know, 30 to 60 minutes earlier. And you go, well, that I know, no, I need my sleep. Okay. Well then go to bed 30 to 60 minutes earlier. Right. I mean, and there's literally nothing that I've ever found that's more important than for us to dedicate time each day to becoming the person that we need to be that's capable of creating the life that we really want. And that is, by definition, that is what the Miracle Morning is. It is a daily ritual that you do first thing in the morning to put you in a peak physical, mental, emotional, and, and even spiritual state. If you, you know, if you believe in that sort of thing, then every day you start your day at a level 10, which impacts every, every day. Right. If you want to win the day, how do you have it? How do you create the life of your dreams? You make sure that you have that you string together more days than not where you're doing something that moves you closer to the, the, the dreams and the goals that are really important to you. And the miracle morning is ensuring that you start it each day. And last thing I'll say on that is this, Ella, there is an entire chapter in the miracle morning book that is called the six minute miracle morning. And it's literally how you do the miracle morning on those days where you're pressed for time and you, you know, you're like, oh, I've got to, you know, leave early or whatever. So that I, I did this for myself, by the way, once again, the six minute miracle morning was my thing for me before it was ever going to be part the book was not even a thought. And I did it because there were so many days where I'd wake up and I'd go, man, I got to leave in like half an hour. I don't have time for the miracle morning. And one day I just went, wait a minute. What if I did like one minute for each of the lifesavers, one minute for each of the practices, six minutes total. And I meditated and I prayed for a minute and it was only a minute, but that's all it took for me to get kind of grounded and, you know, just kind of at peace. Then I read through my affirmations. It only took a minute, right? I, only, I did 60 seconds of jumping jacks. It's amazing, by the way, how what 60 seconds of jumping jacks will do to the way that you feel like your energy and your alertness. It's like a game changer in 60 seconds. So there's no excuse. You can do the miracle morning in as little as 60 or six minutes a day. And I don't recommend that your daily miracle morning is six minutes every day. You can't go very deep, you know, um, but you could read a page in a book, uh, you know, in your one minute of reading and get one idea that's going to give you, you know, improve your life, et cetera. So, so that's my answer is that number one, you have to make time for your personal development. And number two, you, you know, the miracle morning shows you how to do it in as little as six minutes a day. Oh my gosh, so many nuggets there. So the six minute miracle that you outlined in chapter seven, I that's what I'm gonna do. That's I am committing to the listeners. I'm gonna do that for the week following the show, and then I'm going to report out on my my results. Cause six minutes, I feel like I have no excuses. <laughs> no excuses, right? Now, Ella, real quick, are you are you a member of the Miracle Morning community on Facebook? I am not a member of the Miracle Morning. I am writing this down. It will blow your mind. You have never seen an online community. I mean, I can't speak for you. But I have never seen an online community, and I'm part of a lot of them, uh, and it's on Facebook, by the way, but okay. that that is one-tenth as engaged. I mean, this is like a common thing. Someone will go on there and go, hey, I'm new here. Anyone have any advice for me in this area? And by the end of the day, they'll have 30 to 70 comments. It's crazy. Okay, we're getting on there. And of course, on the um, on the website, onairwithella.com, we'll put links to all of this stuff so that everybody can get a piece of this. But I have to, okay, two more things. I love what yes. you said about the snooze button because to me, it's like, it's the perfect metaphor for life. I mean, to yeah. me, the fastest way to mediocrity is procrastination. Yep, and then hitting the snooze button is literally starting the day with procrastination. I'm going to, I'm going to be, my own personal experiment. I will share with my folks what happens after I practice a six minute miracle. And then I promise to try to grow the six minutes, but that's what I'm committing to now. Six minute that's miracle. Okay. You no guys start somewhere, right? Make, I, I believe I, uh, Jack, it was either Jack Canfield or Mark Victor Hansen that I was, I was, uh, saw speak once and he talked about leaning into things and people often overwhelm themselves by trying to go from zero to 60 right? Versus zero to six. You know what I mean? And he said, just lean into something, just do a little something. You know, if you want to exercise, exercise one minute a day, right? You know what I mean? And just keep it simple. And then once you do that for enough days, your mind wraps around the idea of the activity. Um, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll share one more resource for you to put in the show notes. And that is miraclemorning.com. For anybody that's not ready to buy the book on Amazon yet, that's a good way you can get started for free. If you go to miraclemorning.com, they can get the first couple chapters of the book for free. They get a 15-minute video training from me for free and a 60-minute audio training for free. So all of that. And then, you know, or if you want to, you're ready to like, hey, I'm ready to 
buy the book. You can go to Amazon for that. But but Miracle Morning is a good place. You know, dot com is a good place to to get kind of your feet wet, you know, and, and like I said, lean into it. How that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that resource. And then one question that I want to ask you that I'm trying to ask everybody in an interview, except when I forget, is what's one habit you want everyone to take on and try for one week? And I have a sneaking suspicion I know what that <laughs> is, but do you want to be really hyper specific? What's one yeah. habit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, here's here's the deal is do not wait to be great. Do not wait to to improve your life. Don't wait. Don't wait a second. So my challenge or encouragement for everybody is don't wait till the Miracle Morning book arrives in the mail to start doing it. Just my 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 habit is, yes, it's the Miracle Morning, but it's the it's the simplest version, which means simply right now, go and move your alarm clock back 30 minutes, maybe 60 if you want, but 30 minutes um, and 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 wake up not at that moment that you normally wake up, which is when you have to wake up to be somewhere, do something or answer to someone, wake up 30 minutes earlier because you want to dedicate time to becoming the person that you need to be to create the most extraordinary life that you can imagine. And then spend that time doing something positive, some form of personal development. Maybe that time is spent reading the Miracle Morning book. Maybe that time is spent, or maybe it's 15 minutes of reading a book and 15 minutes of exercising. You don't have to have all the lifesavers down and don't wait for it to be all be perfect. Just start immediately. That's the best thing that you can do for the next week. How that's a perfect ending to a great, great interview. Thank you so much for your time, Hal. You're welcome, Al. Thanks for having me and everybody that listened. Thank you so much for your time for listening. I hope you got some value and I hope I'll see you in the Miracle Morning community on Facebook. You betcha. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay, guys, before you go, make sure we're connected on Facebook on the On Air with Ella page so that you can hear how my experiment goes when I do the six-minute miracle for the next week starting tomorrow. Join me over there. See ya. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com, where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.